0: Hi there. Welcome to the Branch Life Podcast. We're so happy that you tuned in. Please join us today as we continue our series through the book of Matthew. A series called Seven Life Lessons, where every week we're looking at one truth that will transform your life. We're so glad that you're joining us. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, wherever you are in the world, we hope that this will be an encouragement to you. If you're with us every week, welcome back. And if this is your first time logging in, uh, welcome. We're especially glad that you're here. We'd love to hear from every one of you. Would you take a moment to fill out the online connection card before you log off we're about to jump into this series which is just a continuation of our study of the book of matthew so if you have your bibles or if you have your matthew journals get them out we're somewhere in matthew's chapter 14 through 16 where jesus teaches these powerful lessons my name is josh i'm one of the pastors at branch life church And again, we're glad that you've joined us today. If you'd like more information about Branch Life, if you'd like to give online, if you'd like to find more shareable resources, uh, you can find all of that at branchlife.church. And we'd love to connect with you more there. And if this message is helpful to you today, don't forget to share it with your friends on social media. Hey, grab your Bibles, grab your Matthew journals. Let's dive into today's life lesson. Remember the life lessons your dad taught you. Dads teach the best life lessons. I remember the first of many life lessons my dad taught me by making paper airplanes. He taught me how to fold and measure the paper so it was sore. That was amazing. I learned so much. Our Heavenly Father also teaches life lessons. He said, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So you've got your journal. We're going to start on page 86. If if you're in your Bibles, we're at Matthew chapter uh, 15 today. We're jumping into life lesson number four. Uh, We've covered three of these. You can backtrack at any point and see these online. But life lesson number four is just simply this. Every faith journey needs partners. Every faith journey needs partners. Now, basically we're saying two things today. Number one, everybody's on a faith journey. And today we're going to learn about uh, levels of faith journeys. So where are you at on your faith journey? And our arms are open wide to you to help you take your steps forward. Number two, you were not designed to be on your faith journey alone. God designed us to live in community together. Now, in case you need an object lesson to understand that this is a major need, partnership is a major need in your life, I want to give you Exhibit A on the History Channel, uh, the reality television show, aptly named Alone. How many of you have seen this show on the History Channel, the Alone reality TV show? Here's what happens. For those of you that haven't seen it, a lot more people saw it in the first service. Uh, They put 10 or 15 people alone somewhere in the woods in Canada, and they have no contact with any persons at all. They're completely isolated. No cameramen, nothing. They have to do their own video work with their own GoPros and they have to track their progress. They can only talk to the camera and then they have to just stay alive all by themselves. There's bears and cougars and and snow and rain and, and all kinds of stuff that happens while they're out there. And the goal is to last the longest. There's no set finish line It's simply whoever lasts the longest. They've given one walkie-talkie, and they can only use it when they want a call to be let out of the competition. When they make the call, someone comes and picks them up, takes a couple hours, and then uh, on they go. If you last longer than anyone else alone in the wilderness, you win $250,000. Here's what they've said now in their eighth or ninth season to a person. The hardest part of that reality show is not making your own food. It's not trying to find water and boil it. It's not staying warm at night or building a shelter. It's not avoiding the bears and the cougars and dealing with the elements. The hardest part of that show is the utter and complete isolation. They are totally by themselves. And some people don't last but a couple of days because they're absolutely by themselves. They're always surprised by it how much it impacts them, how much that it it affects their emotions and their thinking. The reason it's so hard to to be isolated is because you were designed to be in relationship. You were designed to be in community. But how many of us have found ourselves, even in the midst of a crowd, to be alone? How many of of us have felt like we were, uh, even amongst family, isolated? And in the season of connectivity, right, where we're always being contacted, where we're always getting notifications, where everyone's always posting and updating, even in the season of connectivity, we've never felt more disconnected as a culture than we do right now. Loneliness and and the need for companionship and relationship is one of the most significant needs that we have in our lives. I felt like growing up that I was the only kid in my class who couldn't spell. I've told you before, I've always had trouble with spelling and always had trouble with reading because I'm dyslexic, I have a learning disability. And so even in high school when we were taking these tests every year, right, they'd do your reading level and and they'd, they'd merge where you're at. Mine landed squarely back in elementary every single time. And so we would take these tests, right, week after week, and you'd have to take 10 words, you have to spell them right, and and if you got 10 out of 10, you got 100, if you get 9 out of 10, you got 90, if you got 8 out of 10, you got 80. I can do math, I just can't spell, right? And so this is what would happen to me when when we would take these tests. My friends, after every test, would go, hey, what'd you get? I spelled 8 right. And I'm looking at a paper most weeks that had a 0 out of 10. And I didn't want to show that to anybody. I didn't want to celebrate my zero. Dude, I got 10 out of 10. Josh, what many did you get? I'm like, oh, I lost my paper. Because in my mind, everybody else in the class knew how to spell. Everybody in the class understood it. Everybody else in the class got A's. I was the only one that couldn't get it. Now, when I found out that wasn't true, that transformed my life. There was a teacher that came in that would say, put her arm around me, and she would say, hey, I, I, have, troubles. I have trouble with this too, and there's a couple other kids, and we're going to get together, and we're going to give you a tutor, and the tutor knows how this works, and watch these other kids, and, and all of a sudden, these other kids, they didn't spell like I couldn't spell, and all of a sudden, I didn't feel quite as alone, and it wasn't as embarrassing to have a zero. Instead of hiding my zero, I would bring it out and be like, I got zero out of 10, I need help. And then the teacher would help me and the tutor would help me and the other kids would put their arm around me. And then as I learned to identify other people that understood what I was going through, we would team together to the point of where I can read. I can not only read in English, I can read in a couple other languages. I've been able to now excel in an area that's difficult for me because there was a team that rallied around me in the education system, including my parents, including my mom, including uh, uh, college professors that were en- able, enable me to be able to excel in an area that I couldn't do it by myself. None of us were designed to go through life alone. Everybody needs Partners. That's what this chapter of Matthew identifies for us. As I was reading these next couple of paragraphs that we're gonna read together today, I just wanna give you a little bit of insight. It felt like to me a little bit of Groundhog Day. Like I was reading the same thing that we already read. The story sounded similar. We'd already seen these miracles. Uh, This stuff was already happening. We've already made all these points. Why was it being repeated? So I started asking myself, this is being repeated. Why is it being repeated? And what is Matthew and the Holy Spirit leading us to? What Matthew is leading us to is what we're going to talk about next week. So don't miss next week. But Matthew is reviewing something that he has been teaching. And he's, he's highlighting this fact that we're all on a faith journey. And he is bringing back to our recollection the four levels of faith that he identifies. These four levels will mark you and I. All of us are on one of these levels. And this is the only place in Matthew where all four levels show up in the same moment, in the same conversation. It's kind of like he's summarizing these four levels. So let's look at these four levels of faith. We're going to see, first of all, great faith. And that's going to be the highest level. And we're not going to look at these in order, but this is what they are. The next one is little faith. And this shows up from time to time in Matthew, and if you remind yourself, we're, we're going to remind ourselves where we've seen this, but we're going to see it again. Then there's saving faith, then there's pre-faith, and all of these show up in this moment. So let's, let's look at them together and learn what these levels are and kind of explore them for ourselves. So first of all, great faith. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, let's start in Matthew 21, verse 21 in chapter 5, 15, excuse me, 15, 21. This is the story of the Canaanite woman. In verse 21, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. In other words, he was out on the outskirts. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying. Now, the Canaanite woman, this is kind of like not a family member. This is not one of the neighbors. This isn't this isn't one of the countrymen that was coming up to Jesus. This was a Canaanite woman, and the Israelites looked at the Canaanites with disgust. This was someone that they didn't connect with. This was someone they were warned against, and she came out and was, was trying to talk to them. Cain, the Canaanites in the Old Testament have a very, 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 very bad reputation, right? And so if you were marked by the mark of Cain, that was wickedness and wrongdoing. And now we're back in, in kind of Jesus' day and there was a Canaanite region. So this is referring to the, like, this lady's nationality. She shows up and she comes to these, these Israelites and she's a foreigner and she inserts in herself. And all the disciples immediately are like, uh, not her. And she she is the one who is going to be, in a couple of minutes, identified as the woman who has great faith. Jesus is going to say to her, O woman of great faith. The only other time Jesus uses this phrase in Matthew is to identify another foreigner from another story that we've already read. And he comes up to Jesus, and he passes the test, and he declares his faith, and Jesus says to that foreigner, You have greater faith than anyone in Israel, even John the Baptist. So what makes this faith so great? Well, if you look at this verse, and verse 22, Behold, the Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, circle this, O Lord, son of David. What did she just say? This foreigner came up to Jesus and called him Lord. She called him master. She she said, I am bowing my knee, I'm offering my sword, I'm giving you my life. What's mine is yours. I am a follower of you. It'd be kind of like me an American going back to England, finding the queen, and bowing a knee and saying, Queen, I am now your submissive servant. And she'd be like, You're an American. You have a president. This Canaanite woman is abandoning her nationality. She's abandoning her religion. She's abandoning her community of faith. And she is stepping into a community of faith where she is announcing Jesus as Lord. And then she says, oh, son of David, she's announcing him as royalty. She is submissive to Christ. You see, a mark of great faith is that you are submissive to Christ. Your hand is out, your palm is up, and you say, God, I will obey you. This is what Peter did when he was on the boat, and he said, tell me to to walk on water, command me, and I will obey. We pray to obey, not to get, right? And so we're submissive to God, and I want to say to God, God, I'm going to do whatever it is you tell me to do. When you are in that posture, that is a posture of great faith. And this woman took that posture. She declared him Lord. She said, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. How many of you have ever had a sick kid? I mean, a really sick kid. How many of you have ever had a kid that was in trouble? A kid that was just on the edge of the cliff? You as a parent, your heart stirs for that child. You you think about it. You pray about it. You you agonize over it, you wonder, you you strategize, it becomes all-consuming because you're the parent and they're the kid and they're in trouble and you've got to help them. And and this child was oppressed by a demon. We've we've seen this before, right? Like the spiritual battle is real. Like there is powers of darkness in this world and we've already talked about it. It's already been a conversation. Why is it coming up again? Well, this, this woman needs help with her daughter and she's declaring Jesus as Lord and he... Answers her not a word. Silence. His disciples then came begging to Jesus, send her away for he's crying after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But look at this. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, circle that help me. The second mark of great faith in this passage is persistence. She was persistent. She didn't give up. She didn't stop. She kept coming after him. And when when he didn't respond, when she felt like she was being ignored, she just didn't turn away. How many times have we prayed once for one thing and we didn't get what we wanted and so we got mad and we stopped? How many times have we come to one worship service to hear from God and we felt like he was silenced and we said, I'm never going back there again. How many times have we invested in our relationship with God for it not to go our way the way that we thought it should go as quickly as we thought it should go and then we end up turning our fist to God and abandoning him and saying, God must not be real. God must not hear me. God must not love me. I'm out of here. That is not a mark of great faith. Great faith persistently pursues God without receiving anything in return. Great faith allows yourself to take this posture that says, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask again, I'm going to ask again, I'm going to ask again, again, again. Not because your 300th prayer will finally change God's mind, but because your 300th prayer demonstrates the level and the greatness of your faith. That God still got this, no matter what I think and perceive. And in that moment, God's silence could have been interpreted as a rejection. That's not how she took it. She took it as 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 a sign to get louder. To go greater after God. To pursue him with a fuller heart and with more energy. And then, he says, I was only sent to the people of Israel. This is not a slight. He's not putting her down. He's not being snarky or critical. He's simply stating the facts. It was true. Jesus was sent to Israel, the king of the Jews. Jesus was the Messiah that was sent to the people of God. But in this moment, this is a hinge moment theologically, where the doors of Jesus' love... Where the relationship that Jesus is offering, where the salvation that Jesus gives is now open to everyone, not just the Jews alone, but to the Jews and Gentiles, to you and to me. And Jesus says, I've been sent only to the Israelites. And she goes, great, I want in too. I want to follow you. I want to submit to you. I want to be your daughter in Christ. I'm I'm, I'm in. I'm in for who you are. Why would she do that? Because she had become convinced at some point in her spiritual journey that he was God, that God had sent Jesus. She probably saw his miracles. She probably heard about his reputation. She may have read the Old Testament and realized this was God in flesh. And if this is God in flesh, I don't care where I've come from. I don't care what family I've been a part of. I don't care what religion was in my past. I'm going to go all in with Jesus. And when he says, I've only come to Israel, that's fine. I'm coming along for the ride too. Now, then he said, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. If I would have told you that come to church today because Jesus calls women dogs, how many of you would have come? Like, now that's offensive. (laughs) Like, First, you ignored her, then you said she was from the wrong country, and now you called her a dog? Like, what's happening in this moment? Is this really, like, how this is being said, and what's, what's, what is, what, what is, I don't get it. Jesus, she loves you, she's coming after you, and you're, you're constantly trying to push her away. Yes, he was constantly trying to push her away, because each and every one of these moments was a test. Here's something about great faith. Great faith is not easily offended. Great faith is not easily offended. Man, if you, if you were in the presence of God and God calls you a dog, you could turn around and go, how dare you? How dare you call me a dog? How dare you give me a name? How dare you put somebody else in line in front of me? How dare you treat them differently than them? It's not fair. I want to be given a greater position. I want to be given greater favor. I have earned it. I'm here. I'm submissive. And you owe me. And if that's how you're going to treat me, I'm going to go find some other God to follow. That's what she could have done. And we do that all the time to God. We get offended by God. We get offended by God's answers. We get offended by God's results in our lives. And we think that God's not treating us the way we should be treated. Like we're entitled to some great stuff. No, God says, fine, if you want the crumbs, I'll give you the crumbs. And she said, thank you, God, for the crumbs. Because great faith is content with whatever God provides. She says to him in verse 28, in verse 27, excuse me, yes, Lord, circle Lord yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table God I'm going to be content even with the crumbs why because they're the crumbs from God I got a crumb from God He gave me a little bit. And how many of us could be content with just a little bit? If he gave us just a little bit of money, not all the stuff that we wanted. If he gave us just a a, a little bit of a car, if he gave us a little bit of a favor, if he gave us a little bit of a blessing, if he gave us a little bit of an insight to who he is, could we be content with that? But how many of us want more? I've asked God all the time to help me win the lottery, and I haven't won it once. Now, can I get mad at God for treating me not like he's treating the other people that apparently have a better prayer life and win the lottery? Would I be content with just being able to pay my bills every month? Would I be content with a, con- with a consistent paycheck that I've worked hard for, that God has supplied? Could I be content with that car that I have instead of the car that I want? Could I be content with the kids that God has given me without being discontent and wanting more or different kids? Listen, I told you last week, we had trouble having kids. We only can have two. Could I be content with the spouse that I have and not want something greener on the other side? Could I be content with the learning disability that God has given me? Could I be content with the storm? You see, godliness plus contentment is great gain. When I'm trusting God, even his crumbs matter. Have you ever seen those basketball stars at the end of a basketball game? And they'll, they'll play the game, and they're all sweaty and gross and disgusting because they've just played a game, and it was a regular game. And I was at one of these games where the basketball star was like, ah, and the, the kids are like cheering, like, I love you, you're amazing. And they, they're toweling off, and they have this disgusting towel, and, and, and all of a sudden they, they take their shoes off, and the shoes smell, and they're terrible, and they give a shoe to a fan. You ever seen that and you know what those fans do every time oh my word I got a shoe it's amazing it's amazing I got this shoe from this guy who played this game and it's gross and it smells but I got it it's one shoe it's like the left shoe you don't even have the right and the left you have one stinky shoe but you're so excited about it because a celebrity gave it to you how many times do we thumb our nose at the shoes that God gives us right When we realize it's from God, we can be content with that gift. That's what defines great faith. Submissive to God, persistent in pursuit, and content with whatever God provides because he's God. So have you ever been to this moment in your faith? Have you ever gotten to this level where you can say, I'm truly content with who God is, and I'm following him with this great faith? Jesus says to this Canaanite woman as he ends this verse, Jesus answered her in verse twenty-eight. "O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly, and all God's people said, Amen. The miracle of following God and having great faith is the opportunity to see God do miracles every day in my life. Now he goes to the second level of faith, and this is saving faith. Again, these aren't in order. But this is how they come up. And we see a repeat of something that happened over and over and over again to Jesus. In verse 29, Jesus went on from there. He walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up to the mountain. He sat down. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet. And he circled us, healed them. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speak and the crippled healthy and the lame walk and the blind seeing. And they glorified God in Israel. Over and over and over again, Jesus would sit down, crowds would come, and the crowds would bring the the blind and the mute and the lame to Jesus, and Jesus would heal them. Why would anyone bring a cripple to Jesus? Why would anyone bring the broken to Jesus? Because Jesus was in the business of healing broken things. That's what Jesus does. And they brought someone to Jesus because they had faith that Jesus could heal them if he chose to. That's saving faith. In other parts of Matthew, when these stories are told, it it goes like this. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the parapolitic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Rise and pick up your bed and go home. You see, their faith was enough not only to heal their bodies, but for, uh, for their souls to be healed. Saving faith, number one, saves you. And saving faith is as basic and as little as a child's faith. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And you can have the faith of a child, and that faith can save you. When you realize that you're broken, that you're sinful, that Jesus came and died for your sins, and you can accept the free gift of salvation, anybody can accept the gift. And you can accept that free gift of salvation, and it will save you. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That's all it takes. It's easy. Just a little bit of saving faith. But saving faith not only saves you, it also heals you. And these people were brought to Jesus, and he had, they had the faith to heal them, and Jesus did heal them. He can heal broken things. He can fix cancer. He can cause blindness, the blind to see. Jesus does have that miraculous ability. Now, we don't, as Christians, believe in healing on demand. In other words, any ailment you want, if your faith is big enough, God will take it away. We believe in the will of God and that he allows storms and suffering in our lives. But if he chooses to, he can. But what we absolutely believe in healing is that God always heals our brokenness. God always heals our spiritual fractures. That God is in the business of spiritually making us whole. And that on our faith journey, we first must recognize that we are spiritually broken and then that we need some supernatural intervention to heal that brokenness. That's saving faith. It used to be hard to convince people that we were broken, or that they were broken inside. But the longer 2021 and 2022 goes, the more we can easily prove that we're all broken. I mean, I don't know about you, but this pandemic has been awful, as far as bringing people together. I thought we would all sing kumbaya and and hold hands and start agreeing on things, uh, just as we did in the beginning, like... Like, we had to shut things down and go online, but it was, like, cool to go online, and everyone gathered with their families, and and we got online, and we worshiped together, and we checked in on each other, and we prayed together, and that went great for, like, two months, and then two months go by, and you're not gathering your family together anymore. Digitally, you're kind of like someone's watching on iPad there, and someone's sort of on their phone while they're cooking, and we never really can get it. And we're not really singing any songs or anything like that, but we'll sort of pay attention. Well, maybe I'll catch it later because it's recorded. And it kind of all fell apart, and, and then people started getting mad at people, and then there was reactions, and we weren't opening fast enough, and we're opening too fast, and not enough mass, and not too many mass, And it'll all be okay when a vaccine finally comes, like we thought. Well, that just made everything worse. Apparently, so everyone's got to have an opinion about what we're going to do with the vaccine, which not going to do with the vaccine, and then there's probably we just got to get through the election, and oh my goodness, and all this other stuff is happening, and people are just losing their minds. Why? Because we're broken. We're broken. We don't have it figured out, we don't have all the answers, we don't know how to heal ourselves, we can't get past the fear and the anxiety and the anger and the pain, and we're just living in a world where we're angry and we're divided and we're scared and there's no hope, we're broken. But saving faith is healing faith. And God can heal our anxiety, he can heal our brokenness, and he can heal our divisions if we just come to him with this faith. He's in the business of doing just that. So God heals all of these people, proving this faith, this saving faith again. And then he goes into the story of the feeding of the 4,000. Didn't we just hear about this with the feeding of the 5,000? Then Jesus calls his disciples and said, have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed the crowd? What a stupid question, right? Like, just a few chapters ago, like just a few weeks ago, you were on this trip and there was 20,000 people and you didn't have any bread and Jesus said, bring me the bread and he split it up and there were 12 baskets left over and 20,000 people ate so much food that they didn't know what to do with it. So, Jesus said to them, okay, I can't believe I'm asking this, but how many loaves do you have? Because... I'm going to do it again. You guys remember the last one? Like, it was going to be, and there was no, and then I just, and we made the, I'm going to do that. That's what I do. So that's where we're going to get the bread. And he said, they said seven, well, only seven and a few small fish, right? And the directing the crowd to sit down. She's like, All right, I'm moving my sleeves up. Here we go. Directing the, he took the seven loaves of fish. Having given thanks, he broke them. He gave it to the disciples, and the disciples gave it to the crowds. And they were all, what's the word? Satisfied. Saving faith satisfies. Saving faith recognizes that Jesus is the supplier of bread. Jesus is the giver of water, and if you drink of me, you will never thirst again, and if you eat from me, you will never hunger again. Jesus constantly said, come to me, I will give you rest, I am the one that satisfies. All you need for that satisfaction is saving faith. Saving faith allows you to be satisfied in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. So if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, know that he is satisfying you even now in this moment. Now, maybe you're here today and you're not sure if you have a personal faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been looking for satisfaction in other things, in, uh, in religion, in, in community, in yourself. Today, Jesus says, you only just need saving faith to come to me and to be saved, to be healed, and to be satisfied. And in this moment, Jesus is inviting you into a relationship with him. Stop looking for satisfaction in other places. Today, friend, I want to invite you, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, to take the step of salvation. Take that one step further to say, I now want to be a follower of God. Like the Canaanite woman, I'm going to fall on my knees and say, I believe in Jesus. If you have any questions about how to do that, you can go to the gospel page on our website anytime, and you can go through this process, and you can think about what Jesus says. We'll guide you through it about how to be saved, how to be born again. It's super simple. One, realize you're broken. I'm a sinner. Two, believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. Three, accept the free gift of salvation that he offers. Because it's by grace you're saved through faith, not works. Lest any man should boast. That's a quote from Jesus. So as we, as we look at this stuff, if this is where you're at in your spiritual journey, today could be the day of your salvation. There are people who are on pre-faith parts of their journey. You could say pre-faith, or you could say non-faith, or you could say unfaith, or you could say, I think, the most theologically best term is, is uh, covered faith. And these are people that are struggling to have a belief in Jesus as their personal Savior. And I'm not describing everyone who's not following Jesus as cynical, selfish, and blind, but I am saying that as it, as it, as it impacts your faith journey. And here's what happens in chapter 16 as this kind of faith comes up. Chapter 16, verse 1, and enter the Pharisees and Sadducees. They came to test him and ask Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. You see, the first thing that unfaith does or pre-faith does is it cynically tries to test Jesus. Not test with this open-eyed, open-hearted, I'm pretty sure you might be who you say you are, I'm, ex- I'm, a, I'm inspecting whether or not you are you say or you are, but I'm coming in to try to prove you wrong. I'm cynical, I'm I'm upset, I'm angry, I'm grinding my teeth at you and I want to trap you. That cynicism is what was coming up with these pre-faith believers. They were cynically trying to attack Jesus and then they were going to ask for a sign from Jesus. So first, they were cynical. Second, they were selfish. They're going to be called in a couple of verses adulterous. They're going to be the adulterers of their generation. And adultery at its very core is selfish. Adultery is doing what pleases you no matter at the expense of other people. I don't care if it's right. I don't care if it's wrong. I don't care if I'm in a relationship. I'm going to be an adulterous person and I'm going to put myself above everyone else. In pre-faith, We can get to this stage where we think we have all the answers, we think we're right and you're wrong, and everything that I know and I see must be the truth because I'm the judge, jury, and executioner. We have to, in our spiritual journeys, get to the point where we know or we realize we don't know everything. It's not all about me. The world and the universe don't revolve around Josh. Josh. That I'm a small part of a massive story. That God is greater and more infinite than I am. And at some point, I'm going to have to take God's word for it. So until we get to that point, we're still in pre-faith, trying to figure it out for ourselves. Jesus says to these men that are in pre-faith, he answered them in verse 2, chapter 16. When it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. When it is morning... It will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. Did you know that this is where red sky in the morning, sailors warning, red sky at night, sailors delight comes from? Did you know that was biblical? Do you know why it's in the Bible? Because it's true. It's how the weather works. It's a part of the system. And so then Jesus says, You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the sign of the times. They're blind. These men, these pre-faith people cannot see what's right in front of them. Think about the advantage that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had of seeing Jesus in person. They could see the people be healed. They could see the blind brought given sight, the mute being able to speak, the lame being able to run around and skip. They could go up to those people and they could interview them. They could explore them. They could medically test them. They could see the dead being raised to life. They could see Jesus walking on water and calming storms, turning water into wine. Like, they had him there. They could hear Jesus' words for themselves. They could see the prophecies in the Old Testament and actually watch them be fulfilled. Like, The sign was right in front of you and you missed it. He's standing right there and you still can't see it. And Jesus says you can sell the weather, but you can't even notice God. Why? Because they're blind. So how do we pray for our pre-faith friends? How should you pray if you're not sure whether or not you believe in Jesus? Pray this prayer. God, open the eyes of my heart. God, help me to see what I can't see on my own. I pray for you that God will open your eyes, that God will allow you to see him in amazing ways every day. Listen, God is a part of our lives every day, and if you just don't see it, it doesn't mean he's not there. So we see God, and we know God, and God invades our lives, and at some point, all of us were in this position of pre-faith. He then jumps into the last level, and it's called little faith. This may be the largest level of Christendom. By far, there's more people in this world who are on the pre-faith part of the journey. But once you're a part of the church, once you have saving faith, where do most of us land? Most of us land in the little faith category. And this was true of the disciples in verse 5 of 16. When the disciples, or in other words, the students, reach the other side... They had forgotten to bring the bread. The disciples really have a hard time with bread. Like, this is going on and on. And so Jesus says, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the, the false blind religious leaders. Same warning as last week. But they began discussing amongst themselves the fact that we didn't bring the bread. So Andrew's sitting on the boat and goes, guys, where'd we leave the seven baskets? And Thomas is like, Philip, you had one job. Like, get the baskets from the shore and put them in the boat so we have dinner. We just need one basket. And Philip's like, I thought Nathaniel was going to do it. And they're like, now what are we going to do for dinner? Like, we, yeah, we ate, but that was like two hours ago. And I'm really hungry now, and oh my word, we're not going to have dinner. And I can't believe this. And somebody's got to like sail the boat, and we got to drive an extra hour, go out of our way. I was, I was driving in New York yesterday. and It was dinner time, and I was all excited. I was going to stop at McDonald's. And for me, McDonald's is a treat, right? Like I'm going to stop at my McDonald's. I'm gonna get, I pull up at McDonald's, and it, and it was closed. Who closes a McDonald's? I, pass, I passed a sign that said, I love New York. And I said, nope. Give me PA every day. Our McDonald's are open. I was in the middle of nowhere. I quick got on my phone and I'm like, I don't know where to go to get McDonald's on the walls I want McDonald's. And like the closest McDonald's was like 20 minutes away. I'm like, who spreads out their McDonald's 20 minutes apart? This is so inconvenient. That's where the disciples were. Then, then Jesus. Verse eight. But Jesus, aware of this, was rubbing his temples. Look, I got ice. I um excuse me. Over here? Would you did you Do you want me to make the fish jump into the boat? Do you want me to turn that barrel into bread and kind of feed us? I can start multiplying it, and I can make a gourmet sandwich out of it if you'd like me to. It's kind of my thing. Like, I do this over and over again. I supply your needs. And Jesus says to them, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousands and all the baskets. The seven loaves for the 4,000 and all the baskets. How is it you fail to understand I wasn't speaking about bread. I was talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he wasn't telling them to beware of the leaven of the, the real bread, but of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In this moment, Jesus reminds the disciples that they have little faith. Let's not dig the disciples down. First of all, this means they were safe. They had saving faith. Second, they were growing and learning. They had put themselves in the position to learn from Jesus and to grow from Jesus. They were disciples. They were followers. Their hands were out. Their arms were open. And they wanted to know more. They wanted to do better, to be better. But they weren't perfect. And the problem with little faith is little faith is easily distracted All of a sudden, I get so concerned about my meal that I forgot about God who's standing over my shoulder, the provider of every meal that I've ever eaten. I get so worried about the storm that I'm in or the the dyslexia that I have or the amount of money that I'm missing. I get so worried about my daughter's sickness and illness. I get so worried about what's going to happen tomorrow and where we're going to go with all this political unrest and this division Why are you worried about tomorrow? Why are you worried about your meal? Why are you worried about this church? Why are you worried about your spouse? Why are you worried about any of it? You have God. Don't be easily distracted by the things of this world, but put all of your faith in God. And until we're able to move from little faith to great faith, we're going to find ourselves battling those distractions over and over and over again. So here's the question that we have for you this morning. What level of faith do you have? What level of faith are you on? Are you in this great faith where you're content with God, where you're submitting to God, where you're loving your relationship with God? If you are amazing, awesome, fantastic, stay there, love it, live it, and bring someone else with you. Are you, are you exploring salvation? Have you just recently come to know Jesus as your personal Savior? Then you want to you go all in with your faith and start growing and learning so you can see what God has for you. Do you have little faith? Have you known him for five years, for 50 years, but you keep finding yourself bouncing back and forth between the trials and the things of this world and trusting fully in God? Or are you pre-faith, still exploring who Jesus is? Where are you on your faith? Wherever you are, let's ask this question, how do I level up? How do I level up? We're gonna answer this more fully next week because this is what God is getting at, but to introduce the thought, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded to you. Listen, this verse, this mission cannot be accomplished alone. It takes two to tango. It takes two to make disciples. It takes a team. This is something that God has asked us to do as a community project. He then says in 2 Timothy 2.2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will teach others. We gotta teach this and expand it and keep... Teaching and teaching and teaching and let the snowball roll. It takes students and it takes learners. There's going to be community involved to the point in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how we can stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to be together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. How do we level up our faith? How do we we go from saving to little to great? How do I bring someone along who's still in their pre faith? Life lesson number four could be said this way Deep faith requires deep relationships. Deep faith requires deep relationships. You need each other, you need one another. You need community. You need the church. And God has introduced us to this community that he has built into our lives so that we could travel through our faith journey together. We were not meant to travel down our faith journey alone. We need partners. And in the church world, we kind of use the word discipleship. Our job is to disciple one another, to make one another stronger in our faith. And the deeper our relationships and our deeper our connection to one another, the deeper our faith will go. If you catch this transformational truth, your life will never be the, the same again. You need someone else to help you grow, and you need to help someone else grow. It's a part of who we are as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Proverbs chapter 13, 20, it says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Discipleship is us learning to be wise together, to deepen our faith together. Discipleship is together, learning to read God's word. Discipleship is together, learning to pray, learning from the storms, learning from one another. I don't have time to go on all these passages, so your job is to take a picture of this slide and to look up all of these verses because they'll tell you how important each of these skills are. And if you don't know how to read the word of God for yourself, you don't know how to feed yourself. If you don't know how to pray, you don't know how to commune with the God of the universe. If you don't know how to deal with storms, then you don't know how to see God clearer when it's raining. If you don't know how to to learn from another person, then how will you bring someone else to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, these are essential in the self-feeding model. It takes others so that we can learn to grow ourselves. We need one another. We're going to go into this a little bit more fully next week. But I want to close by giving you this encouragement about how, how we are designed to be together as a church. Specifically, how do we at Branch Life Church model this? How do we disciple one another? What are we calling you to do in order to grow in your faith? And this goes back to our vision. This goes back to our strategy and what we believe works now and this time and this season. We have a message from God and we live that out in lots of different ways. The church is always going to have to change our strategy, but here's where we're at as a church today. It may change tomorrow, but this is what we are calling everyone to do in this season as we grow in our faith. We believe that everybody needs somebody. We, call, we say it like this. We believe we're better together. And the way that we come together to grow in our faith has three very important components to it. And we set up all three of these at Branch Life Church. I need three volunteers to help me as we close out the service today. Uh, three people who would be willing to stand up here on the platform with me. Jake, thank you so much. I'm so glad you decided to do it. Dave, all right, man. I appreciate you very much, too. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, let me see who else I can call on. Thomas, yeah, you're awesome. Thank you, brother. They were all raising their hands. They couldn't help it. All right, stand up here, guys, uh, shoulder to shoulder. Jake, you're just going to put your hands out, and you're going to hold on to this Bible, all right? You're just going to, and you're going to be reading it, excited about it. You're going to raise your hands like you're praising Jesus, a little bit more charismatic. There we go. And then you're just going to put your hands out. Yeah, you're going to receive it. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, Baptist, then below the shoulders. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Much better. All right. So our, our first way that we come together is worship. The church comes together to worship. We believe that it's essential in the life of a believer, In order for you to grow in your faith, you cannot disconnect yourself from the weekly worship gathering that is our Sunday morning service. This large group of the church coming together to worship accomplishes three unique things in your life every single week. Number one, it involves a transformational relationship with the Word of God. We're going to dig in and use the Word of God to illuminate and transform our lives. So we preach from the Word of God, we read the Word of God, we sing the Word of God, and when we gather together, the Word of God has a key role in everything that happens because this transformation is not possible without the power of the Word of God. It's not Josh's words or a worship leader's words or a friend's words that will transform you, it's God's words that will transform you. So we gather together to know better God's Word. Secondly, we gather together to worship God, in other words, We want to participate in engaging in an upward focus in the greatness of who God is. So I offer myself in the sacrifice of praise the opportunity to sing God a song, to sing God a new song, to be able to give to him my spirit, my soul, my body, mind, and song in this moment I give that to God. God calls us. To worship him together corporately as a body. And it's transformational when we engage in worship. You see, worship is not passive. Worship is participative. I made that word up. Third, we stand in a posture of submission. We ask God to lead us and we will follow wherever he tells us to go. When we stand and we hear from God, we, allow, we then allow God this moment that he gives us every time we come together. Be still and know that I am God. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This has to be our posture and our commitment to call us together as a church. It should pain you when you cannot be present in this body to, to worship together. And for those of us that are worshiping online because of necessity and need, as soon as that need no longer exists, our goal should be coming together in person because we are better together. And we only use online as a tool when we must. So many of us come to worship with a different posture. Go ahead and just... We come to worship with a posture Of receiving instead of participating. We say, What have you got for me? I'll see if I like it or not. How are you gonna make me feel? What are you gonna make me do? Uh, Am I going to agree or disagree? Instead of taking a posture of participation, we take a posture of receiving. Instead of taking a posture of engagement, we take a posture of evaluation. I'll be the judge of that. I'll let you know if you picked the right songs or the wrong songs. I'll let you know if it was too long or too short. I'll let you know where, and you evaluate and you get stuck. I'm I'm as guilty as this as anyone else. You get stuck in a posture of evaluation instead of a posture of engagement. When we come to worship, we come to worship God and we do that better together the second thing that we're called to do as our faith journey grows is we're called to connect so just put your arms around each other like you love each other there you go excellent good now this is the posture of connection so we come together as a church on Sunday mornings we worship we serve we we engage we do all the things that we talked about super awesome we're going to go into a little bit more next week but then during the week we come together and we connect in groups and this is, our, this is our dream, and this is our, our, our goal, is that everybody would have a group that they're connecting in. Why? Because if you're not connecting in a group, you are at, in the danger of being a Christian who has tragically terminal, casual relationships. If we don't connect in a group, we don't look like this, we look more like, all right, spread apart. Jake, maybe come down here. Dave over there. Yeah, Thomas over there. Good. Now, wave at each other. Don't stop. Keep waving. Yeah, there we go. This is what our relationships look like. We're passing one another and we're waving with one another. We have casual questions about how you're doing and what you're doing and where are you and how you're at, but we never are able to take the time to properly connect with one another and invade each other's loneliness. The purpose of our groups is not more information the purpose of our groups is not more intellectual discussion or debate. The purpose of our groups are connection so that, you, don't stop, keep waving, so that you can connect with one another, so that you can do life together with one another, so that you can then teach and walk and dream one with one another. Come back together, put your arms around each other. What we have seen that happens in groups as groups grow together, what's going to happen at some point one of them is going to suffer, and they're going to need the other two to be there. They're going to need to be there to make that phone call. But if you're in a waving conversation, you're never going to make that phone call. You're never going to reach out to that person. But when you need them to be there, if you already have the connection, it's natural and it's strong. You'll be able to provide meals. You'll be able to provide support. You'll be able to provide encouragement. That comes in a totally different way than just our large group gathering together and worshiping God. That's vertical. This is horizontal where we come together to do life one-on-one. That's why we believe connection is so important at Branch Life Church. Give give these guys a big hand. They were a big help. Now, from the relationships in the church and in your groups, we want to encourage you to have partners. And we simply want to ask it like this. Who are who do you have as partners in your faith journey? Who are your faith journey partners? Yes, I am a part of your discipleship because I teach on Sunday mornings. Your group is a part of your discipleship because you gather regularly throughout the month. But you need some intimate partners, someone that you're drawing closer to Christ and someone that's drawing you closer to Christ. You need someone who's before you and someone who's behind you. And it, it may be One, two, or three people at the most. These are the people that you're most open, most vulnerable with. These are the people that know everything about you and your life, and they're able to to be with you, whether it's for a season or whether it's for a lifetime. Who are your partners? You may have some people that are in pre-faith that you're working and walking with in their faith journey. That's awesome. Keep that connection. You may have been saved for 50 years, And you're helping disciple someone that was saved for five minutes. That's awesome. Let's keep that connection. Here's one thing that we do at Branch, among other things. We use what we call small circle. This small circle is just one of many uh, excuses to partner together with someone else to do the things that we talked about before. And small circle is is simply a little app on your phone, a little program on your phone. There's 12 discussion topics, 12 uh, things that you're going to use to study the Bible together 12 times, and you're going to do some things individually, but you're going to do some things with one other person or with a group of people, small group. And this is going to teach you and help you understand things like prayer and Bible study and church and serving and giving and all this all this stuff that comes with following Jesus. And really, what it is, it's an excuse to partner with someone. It's an excuse to get to know someone and to do life together for that season. And this could be a great way for you to advance your level, no matter what level you're on, is to connect with this, with someone else. We have, uh, we have many people that are doing this right now at Branch Life Church, and we have others that are, are looking for people who they want to pour into, and we have others who are looking to be poured into. So whether you're looking for someone that you'd love to disciple or whether you'd like to be discipled, uh, whether you'd like to be a part of a, 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 a small group or that you'd like more information about the church, we, we want you to give us feedback on the connection card. And let us know if you're at all interested. And we'll work hard as a church to start connecting you with other people, to start invading the loneliness so that we don't have shallow, terminal, casual relationships so that we have deep relationships that lead to deep faith. You see, God designed us to be better together. Where are you in your faith journey, and who are your partners? Let's pray. Dear God and Heavenly Father, as we've looked at this, uh, this amazing spiritual journey that we are on, we think about it, God, I pray that you would help us clearly to perceive where we are in our journey and clearly to perceive what our next steps are. I pray, Lord, that we would be a church that partners together well with one another help everyone grow in the grace and knowledge of Lord Jesus Christ. God, would you from this moment allow there to be the seed that will result in some really awesome in-depth relationships, partners, groups, and connections with the church as a whole. And Lord, if there's anyone that's not sure about their personal salvation, would you speak to them personally today? In your precious name we pray amen. Hey, thanks again for joining us. Don't forget to take a moment to fill out your connection card. Let us know what you've heard from God today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, we'd love to get those. This is something that you can share on social media. If you'd like to do that, we'd be honored that you pass the word along. And if you want to catch up on other uh, life lessons from this series, you can go to our YouTube channel or, or again to our website anytime to find out more. We've prayed over you, we've prayed over this message, and we hope that God has used it in your life to take you one step forward on your spiritual journey. Thanks for joining us during this time, and we hope you'll be back again soon. Have a great day.